Thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, speak to us out of your word. This is your sacred word. And, Lord, you gave us this word. It's breathed out by the Spirit of God. Now, Lord, we need to be built up in the faith. We need you to speak to us. We're asking you to renew our minds and help us, Lord, to increase in wisdom, increase in knowledge, increase in understanding, and grow up into Jesus, into the fullness of the stature of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Well, I do think summer's almost here. Do you get that feeling? I mean, it was kind of, you can feel it coming. All right. We're going to do chapter three tonight. We're doing a chapter a week. That's a real effort for me because I can get bogged down in one verse and spend the whole night on one verse. So I'm having to train myself to sort of skip across these verses a little bit quicker and really pull out the main themes that are there in uh, the verses, because you'll see that the chapters can be broken down into topics that he deals with in two and three and four verses at a time, and we're going to see that tonight. Now, last time, by the way, how many of you have read ahead through chapter three? Have you? Let me see that again. You did you? So you're going to check me out tonight, aren't you? You've already made your notes. See if he got what I got. All right. Last time we ended chapter 2 with John's admonition to abide in Jesus and in the things, this is so important, we've learned about him and from him. Whatever you learn about Jesus that is truth, it needs to stick. Amen? It needs to stick. And no one is going to steal this from you. It needs to stick. So John closed out chapter 2 on that subject. Stay with what you've learned about him and stay with what you've learned from him. Now, he begins chapter 3 with an incredible expression of thanksgiving and awe over what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And let's read it together. This is so good. This is one of my favorite verses. So read it out loud with me, would you? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. He's going, wow, would you think about what God has done? In Jesus Christ. That's what behold is. Behold. Wow. Let it, let it hit you upside the head. Let it wash over you. What the, the love that the Father has bestowed on us. Now, he used the word manner there. What manner of love? That word manner is from a Greek word meaning from what country? With a question mark. From what country? John is saying the kind of love that God has poured out on us can't be found in any country on earth. Behold what manner, from what country, where on the, in the world has this love come from? And the answer is nowhere, because this kind of love, the Father's kind of love, the overpowering, overwhelming, irresistible, inexpressible, inexplicable love of God can't have come from anywhere on this earth. It came from heaven. It is otherworldly love. How many of you can say, I was changed by the love of God? I was changed by the love. Paul said, the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ grips us. The kind of love that made it possible for us to be called children of God is a love he can't find words for. John is absolutely amazed. And it's inexpressible love. So after that incredibly beautiful opening... He explains why there is so often a disconnect between the Christian and the world. How many of you are very, very keenly aware as you go out there in the workplace, and and, and believe me, my prayers are with you. I pray for you. I pray what Paul prayed for the church. I pray that for you. I go to Ephesians, and I pray Ephesians over you. And I pray for you because I, I can just imagine what it's like to go into some of these secular workplaces where you're hit by the devil and, and secularism and foul language and all of the attitudes that are anti-God and anti-Christ and worldly and the things that you hear and the things you have to deal with. Well, uh, he explains here in this verse why there is that disconnect that you feel between yourself and unsaved people. 
He says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world did not receive Jesus. Therefore, it does not understand or receive us regarding our testimony of him. Amen? If they didn't receive the shining sun, they're not going to receive a lesser candle. Amen? So since they rejected him, what does it say about Jesus in John 1? He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. His own didn't accept him. Now his own, in the context there, means the Jewish people. His own Jewish people, the, 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 the Hebrew race, his own, the Jewish people, they didn't receive him. They didn't accept him. There was a disconnect, and they ended up crucifying him. And John is saying, don't let it confuse you or bother you or perplex you that the world doesn't know you. They don't resonate with you because they didn't resonate with him. And you're his, and you're lit. Can everybody say with me, I'm lit? See, when you got saved, you got lit. He he lit a fire in you. I guarantee you, I got lit, and I've been lit ever since. Now, sometimes the lit has gone a little bit flickering, and God had to relight me. That's why the Bible says, fan into flame the gift of God that he has given to you, all right? You're to fan it into flame. So next, John turns his attention to what we are now and what we're going to become one day. He says, I want you to look down the tunnel of time. He says, children, let me tell you what you're going to be. He says, beloved, this is one of my favorites too. Beloved, now we are children of God. Everybody say now. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that means when Christ comes back, we will be how, everybody? Like him. When? When we see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, John is telling us here, all right, first of all, he says, positively, right now, in your now, Right now, in this room, in this sanctuary, you are the children of God. Now, that's an identification. That's identifying you. Can I use another word? That's profiling you. You've been profiled by heaven. That is, you are now children of God. That's who you are now. Uh, yeah, you're, you've got your name. You've got your address. You go to work somewhere, whatever. But when God looks at you, there's my child. There's my son. There's my daughter. Now we are the children of God. But, he says, we can't fully grasp what we shall be. Because when he returns, we will know, see him like he is, and that will make us like him. The minute that we see Jesus, when the trumpet blows and we are caught up, the instant we see him, that instant we're like him. In a moment. In the twinkle of an eye, at the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together uh, and with him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But now watch this now. The word moment means, is from the Greek word atomos. We get atom from it, and it literally means a moment of time so fast you can't split it. So in a, t- in a moment of time so fast you can't split it, you will go from here to there and be like him. Bing. You can't blink that fast. That's faster than a camera flash. All right? You will be like him. You say, well, pastor, what does that mean, that I'm going to be like him? Well, all I know is we're going to have a body like his. That's what the Bible says. Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that we're going to have a body like unto his glorious body. Well, what was his glorious body like? How many of you are ready for a new body? Come on. Hey, aren't you going to be glad you don't have to go anymore to work out at the gym? Not going to have to diet anymore? Not going to have to worry about looking in the mirror and going into shock for a few minutes anymore? No. You know why? Because when we get that glorified body, listen, you talk about a body. You talk about a body. Because what was Jesus' body like? His glorified body could move from place to place at will. He thought, and he was there. No need for cars, no need for buses, 
No need for trains or planes or automobiles. No need for bicycles, which I'm going to miss. But I probably won't. Because isn't it superior to go, gee, I think I'll go to China. Blink. It's, it's, listen, you say, come on, Jeff. No, you come on. Because listen to me now. Remember when Philip um, baptized the eunuch in the water? And it says, as soon as the eunuch came up out of the water, Philip was caught away. And he came to himself in another city. He hit the ground preaching in another city. He was transported. He was transported. Now, that's before heaven. I think the Lord was giving us a little bit of glimpse right there of what it will be like. Uh, everybody say glorified body. Now, that just sounds good, right? A body that is glorified, you know? So, so Philip, and he was there in an instant. He was transported in, in the blink of an eye. He was there, and I've often wondered, what that eunuch think? This guy brings him out of the water, and bing, he's gone. The, it says the eunuch went away praising God. Because he said, I'm in some supernatural stuff here. All right? So he was transported. That's what it'll be like. Jesus' body wasn't subject to natural law. He appeared in rooms without walking through the door. <laughs> you couldn't lock him out. The disciples are in there all hunkered in their bunker, afraid of the Romans and all of that. And suddenly there's Jesus standing there. <gasps> How'd you get in? I don't need a door anymore. They rolled the stone away, not for me to get out, but for you to get in. I didn't need that stone rolled away. I got a glorified body. He appeared in rooms. He ate fish in the glorified body. So he could enjoy food in his glorified body. And can I point out, just, just to say it, he was not a, a vegan He ate meat. He ate fish. It'll be a body without sickness, disease, pain, already aging. Aging's gone. Glorified body. And when will it happen? When we're caught up and the minute we see him, glorified body. Glorified body right then. Now, John points out that everybody who has this hope in him purifies, that's verse 3, purifies himself just as he is pure. How do you purify yourself if you've got that hope in you? Because if you're hoping for the return of Christ, you're not going to go live in sin. You want to be ready when he comes. So if you're always looking up with one eye turned upward, he could come in any moment. I'm going to walk right. It purifies me. It has a purifying effect on me. Amen? Come on, give the Lord a hand. This is heavy stuff tonight. This is heavy stuff tonight. How many of you want to be ready? Amen. Now, John returns now to the subject of sin and the Christian. This is where you kind of got to grab your toes and go, uh-oh, here it comes, but it's going to be good for me. Because notice what he says. Now, remember I told you, John floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. My little children, I love you so much. And by the way, if you do this or that, you're going straight to hell. You're lost. You're dead. He floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee. But watch. He's about to let us know some strong truth. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. That's why Jesus came, isn't it? He was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there isn't any sin. He never sinned. Now, whoever, he says in verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, I taught you what that means in John. It means does not practice sin, does not live in sin, does not live in unrepentant sin. Whoever abides in him will not be living a life of sin. Whoever sins, that is, practices and lives in sin, hasn't seen him nor known him. Wow. Now, he insists that the true child of God, the true child of God, born-again child of God, will not live a life of unrepentant sin. He will not. She will not. He is not saying the Christian will never sin. But his lifestyle will be one that shows the evidence of having been born again. 
See, if you've been born again, there's going to be evidence. If you've been born again, look, I, I was saved out of terrible sin. And when I got saved, no, was I perfect? Oh, I had, listen, I've often thought if I had been God and looked at me, I would have said, no, I think I'll move on to another. Because you talk about a major renovation project, that was me. But you know what? When I really met him and really got saved, I began to clean my life. Well, the Holy Spirit in me began to clean my life up. And I got rid of things I knew were wrong. And and I began to seek him. And I cared about what he thought. I wanted to please him. I had a new nature. We're not talking about rehab. We're talking about a transformation that gives you a brand new nature that you can't give yourself. You can't give yourself a brand new nature. There's no operation on earth that can give you a brand new nature. We need a spiritual heart transplant. And the only one who can do that is God. So he's saying here, look, don't tell me you're saved if you're still living in the world like you were before and there's no change at all. Because if you're saved, it'll show. Jesus himself said a good tree produces good fruit. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. But a bad tree can't produce good fruit. As goes the root, so goes the fruit. What is your root? If your root is worldly, it's going to be bad fruit. If your root is salvation, having been born again, if your root is Christ, you're going to have good fruit. As goes the root, so goes the fruit. Many people, now these are sober words. Verse 20, yes, you, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not what they say, but what they do. Verse 22, look at this. Many people will say to me on that day, that means the day when he has returned. Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we put out demons in your name? Didn't we do many powerful works in your name? Now watch this. Then I will say to them in plain words, say it with me, everyone, next four words. I never, there's the key. They were doing religious things, but they didn't know him. That's the danger. See, he says, I never knew you. Go away from me. Now, how does he describe their lifestyle? Read it with me. You who do what? Wrong. So he's, and he's talking about how they're living, not what they're saying, but how they're living. John's whole point is, if you've been saved, it's going to begin to show fruit. You won't be perfect. It takes a whole lifetime to make us like Jesus. It takes a whole lifetime for us to have renewed minds and to grow up. It's, it's a process. It's not an overnight thing. It's a process. But watch this now. You will evidence change immediately. And you won't be able to live in sin and be okay with it. That's the deal. You will not be able to live in sin and be okay with it. You can't do it. Okay? So it's not what they said. It's how they live. Don't y'all shout me down. Y'all are looking at me real serious. See, and I know it's serious stuff. It's serious stuff. I know. But, but here's the deal. There's a lot of people in churches who think they're saved. I'm not talking about if we just looked at church, if we could be like God and look at churches across the world and, and just know and see through people like God does. Churches are full of people who think because they're in a church they're saved or because they do religious things they're saved, because they give food to the hungry or they give to different ministries or whatever, that they're saved. But no, there's only one way to be saved. Jesus said, you must be born again. You have to be born again, or you won't see the kingdom of God. You must be born twice. Okay? I say it often. I'll say it again. Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're saved. Born once, you're blind. Born twice, you see. Born once, you're dead. Born twice, you're alive. Born once, you're hell-bound. Born twice, you're heaven-bound. We must be born again, twice. Many people who consider themselves religious or good citizens or church folks, they go to church somewhere, are going to be real surprised when Christ returns. Because though they had a form of godliness, which Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3, 5, 
They have not experienced the power thereof. Okay? And he goes on to say, now, I'm feeling like I'm doing an operation here. I feel like I'm in spiritual surgery. I feel like a doctor, and I'm in spiritual surgery, and I'm, I'm kind of opening up our hearts, but I'm not doing it. John's doing it because, listen, look at me. Church, listen. In America, we have a watered-down, diluted, cheapened grace and expression and teaching of Christianity. We have an Americanized version of Christianity. It's an Americanized version of Christianity. It's, it's, it's Christianity light. All right? You know, um, all we hear about God is he wants to bless you. 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 That's all it is. He wants to make you rich. He wants to give you a Mercedes. He wants you to have a great big mansion. He wants you to have this and that and the other. It's all about what God's going to do for you. But when I look at the New Testament, that's not the Christianity I see. That's not the Christianity I read about. That's not the Christianity I hear Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude writing about. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. That means they've been made righteous by Christ just as he is righteous, but he who sins is of the devil. Woo, John, there it is, stings like a bee. He who sins, that is, lives a sinful lifestyle with no intention of getting right with God. He who sins that way is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, why was Jesus manifested? For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God, watch this, does not, now I put it in there so you can just read it and it'll help us. Whoever has been born of God does not practice sin. For his, Jesus's seed, remains in him. And he cannot practice sin guilt-free because he's been born of God. Could that be more, cl- more, more plain, more clear? All right? If Jesus saves you, your nature will be changed along with his likes and dislikes. You'll want to please God. Now, that's not saying you don't have your flesh anymore. How many of you can say, my flesh is still on me? Come on. You know, we still deal with that old flesh, don't we? But here's what you do have. And the flesh is going to be around till he comes back. And when we get the glorified body, that flesh is gone. But until that happens, we, have, we're, we are still encompassed with flesh that can sin at the drop of a hat. But inside, we have a new nature. And that new nature is from the Holy Spirit. And he filled us with the Spirit so we would have the power to crucify our flesh and walk a life that pleases God. All right? He says in Ephesians 5, 9, this is Paul talking. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. The light within you is the seed of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The light within you only produces what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. That's his instruction to Christians. Find out what pleases the Lord. Go find out. Look at, you know, discover what pleases the Lord. And take no part, everybody say no part, in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. So here's the Christian. He says to the Christian, I want you to make it part of your Christian walk to find out what pleases God. And you know what pleases God because when you do it, you have peace in your heart. You feel the smile of God. Don't you love that smile of God where you can sense him saying, well done, child, well done. You pleased me with that. You know, you, you prayed, you sought me, you've been in the word, you've been in prayer. When your flesh rose up and you had some temptation, you resisted and the Holy Ghost strengthened you and you walked in the Spirit and you defeated that temptation. And when you do that, you, you sense the smile of God. It pleases him. That's what the believer will do. The true Christian will walk in the light and he'll shun the works of darkness. Now, 
he next turns again to the topic of love. Here he goes on love again. Verse 10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil. Notice there's two kinds of people. You're of God or you're of the devil. Say, Pastor, that's not politically correct. Oh, the word of God is so non-politically correct. Notice what he's saying. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil, doing what the devil wants you to do or doing what God wants you to do. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Wow. Now, wait a minute. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this is one of John's mantras. Over and over again, he connects truly loving God with also loving your brother or your sister. In chapter 2, he wrote very plainly, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness till now. Verse 9. Verse 11, he who hates his brother is walking around in darkness. All right? So there's a direct connection between if you're truly his, then you're going to have love for the brethren. Now, if you're like me, I go, wait a minute. Now, I flunk on that one a lot. How many of you can say I flunk on that one? Come on, don't look at me so holy. Do you love everybody perfectly? How many of you can say it's hard to love some people? Come on, tell the truth. Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't look at the person next to you. Look at me. It's hard to love people sometimes. But can I give you some good news? You don't have to like somebody to love them. I mean, you can have a really unlikable person in your life but still love them. He didn't say like everybody. Then we're really in trouble because we have personality clashes and whatnot. But he said love. See, and I can love everybody because I can put on love. It doesn't come from me. It says put on love, put on kindness, put on Jesus. We do it by faith. So though I don't have natural chemistry with somebody, or they may really be, they're the fingernails and I'm the chalkboard, still I can love them. And he's pointing out that if you're his, and since God is love, then one of, the, one of the hallmarks and evidences of being truly saved is going to be love. Now, he points back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, and he focuses on Cain as an example of a religious person devoid of love. He says in verse 12, not as Cain. He said, don't be like Cain. Not like Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because Abel's work or Cain's works were evil and Abel's works were righteous. That's the reason he killed him. Well, to me, if you're going to go one way, Abel, I'm going to go another. I don't have to kill you over it. But you see, there was an antagonism. There was a, there was a, there was a hatred. There was what is in people today who persecute Christians. It is something deep within the sinner that when the sinner is confronted with somebody really right with God who's walking in God's ways, they, they don't just not like you. They can hate you. Cain committed the first murder. And he created the first martyr when he killed his righteous brother Abel. He killed him out of jealousy because God accepted Abel's sacrificial offering, but not Cain's. So he said, man, it drove him crazy. He said, I'll kill him. He got God's approval. I'm going to kill him. He was jealous. And I personally believe he slit his throat. Say, how do you know that? Because God said to Cain later, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And I think he slit his throat to mock Abel's offering, because Abel had, had cut the throat of an animal and had brought God a blood sacrifice because he understood sin is only erased by blood. And so I think he was mocking Abel's offering by killing him that way. That's my guess. I think it's a good guess. But see, church, we got to realize Cain birthed the world's first religion too, the first false religion. It came from Cain. And what was that false religion? The religion of good works, self-effort, human merit. I'm going to get to God my way. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going his way. I'm going my way. He told me, yeah, God told my Adam and Eve, my mom and dad, 
It had to be a blood sacrifice, but I don't like that. I don't like bloody stuff. I'm not going to deal with that blood stuff. I'm going to do it my way. And so he brought God a vegetarian, a vegetable offering because he was a farmer. So he brought God what he grew out of the ground, and that wasn't going to do it. God said, that's not what I called for. He told Cain, if you do right, won't you also be accepted? So the bottom line is this. He created the false religion that is so prevalent today. You hear it on the talk shows. You hear it from all the Hollywood elites. You hear it from the broadcast media all over the United States of America and the world. You hear this. Don't tell me about that blood stuff. I don't have to go through some bloody religion, bloody cross. I'll go to God my way. I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. Uh, All that really matters is that I'm sincere. But let me tell you, they're sincerely wrong. Because God judged Cain for not doing it his way. And Cain became the hallmark of how to not do it. Abel became the example of how to do it. Do it God's way. Only God's way is going to get you to God's heaven. So Cain hated his brother's true life of faith. Just like Christians are hated today for their faith in Jesus Christ. And as I speak right now, people all over the world, particularly in Europe and the Middle East, are being killed right now, slaughtered, because they believe in Jesus Christ. And they're being slaughtered by the Cains of this world. They're being slaughtered because they said there's one way, it's the blood of Jesus. And their offering, their faith is accepted. Those killing them are going another route. And they can't stand being around them. Now, so John says, don't marvel, brethren, if the world doesn't just not like you. If the world hates you, in the same way Cain hated righteous Abel, the world will hate and persecute God's true people. Then the apostle continues with some tough language regarding love and true salvation. Are you ready? Everybody say amen. Amen. Are you being blessed tonight? I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. Are you being blessed tonight? I mean, this is just the way it is. This is the word of God. So here's some tough language. He says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. How do you know you've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother, whoa, read it with me, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now you say, wait a minute, Jeff. I'm not going to go kill somebody because I hate them. Let me explain to you where he's going. These are very strong words from John. He's stinging like a bee. John is likely remembering how the 12 disciples sat at a table with Jesus around the first Lord's Supper. And Jesus drops a bomb. He looks at them and says, one of you is going to betray me. And they went into shock. Who's going to do it? And they started asking, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? It was Judas, we know. And because Judas did not love the Lord, but clearly hated him, he turned him over to be murdered. John's remembering that. But he's also remembering that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that murder begins in the heart. Now, church, hear me tonight. I can't tell you how often in life my mind goes to the Sermon on the Mount and what we're about to read because nobody understood human nature like Jesus Christ, nobody. And Jesus went past Old Testament law where you're just told not to do something. Old Testament law was action. Don't don't do the action. Don't kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. Don't do the action. Jesus went deeper. He said, look, deal with your heart and you won't do the action. Now, when it came to hate and murder, Jesus said this, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, don't murder. I'm telling you that anyone who who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. How can that be? Follow me now. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell, Stupid, which is stronger than idiot, when you go to the Greek language, these are progressive words of disdain, okay? Idiot is not as bad as stupid when translated from the Greek. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. Well, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, look, when you 
he's talking about contempt towards a person in your heart. And he says, watch this. Moses said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you allow, if you allow anger in your heart unchecked, you are in danger of getting in trouble with the law. Why? Because if you don't deal with anger, anger breaks forth into violence. Follow me now. So if you're angry, and and King James says without a cause. In other words, you're angry at at somebody, and you're not dealing with that anger. You're not getting rid of it. You're you're stewing on it. You're rolling it around in your head. You're replaying the offense or whatever it is that made you angry at them. You got the rewind button on a continual loop, and you're remembering over and over what they did to you, what they said to you, what they brought on you. You're, you're going over and over it. He says, watch out. If you don't deal with that anger, you're going to go to the next level. Idiot, which is a word of contempt, and it's worse than anger. It, it's a word of contempt. That means your heart now is going from just being mad to being cement towards somebody. Okay? Man, this is good stuff. I know it's strong, but this is good teaching. This is good stuff. Because this may save somebody from jail one day. Because watch this now. He says, because if you go into calling them idiot, that's a level of anger where you might be hauled into court. Because now you can't control what, what that anger is doing to you. And then if you go to the next level and say, stupid, can I tell you what the Greek actually means? Empty-headed idiot. You're calling them an empty-headed idiot. It's a totally contemptuous term. Then you're on the brink of going to hell because of what this is going to do with actions. So Jesus said what John said. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. You're a murderer, and you are already murdering them in your heart. If you don't deal with it, you could actually. Listen, I know this because I watch the ID channel. I'm serious. I watch it all the time. I said this last week. But do you know how many times when I'm watching the ID channel and I watch some couple, for instance, you know, married couple, got kids, good job, professionals, spent years in college, got a lot going on as far as this world's concerned, but they start having problems and a root of bitterness gets in one or both of them. And, and you have first the anger and then you have the contempt and then you have hatred and one of them ends up killing the other, and I, oh, my mind immediately goes to what Jesus taught. If they had dealt with it when it was that little baby anger, if they had snuffed it out right then, I forgive them, I forgive them, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. That's why Jesus said forgive. If you forgive and pray for, your, pray for them, you'll never be in court for hurting them. Good stuff. Now, John next says we should practice the same love Jesus had. By this we know love, verse 16, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, as Jesus laid down his life for us, did he? How many of you know he did? All right. As Jesus laid down his life for us, this should be our attitude towards the brethren. And John makes it real practical. When you see a brother or a sister in need and you've got the wherewithal to help them, we should help them. This is love in action. We should help them. Now, I always have to add little things I've learned along the way. And let me just salt and pepper what we just read with this little bit of wisdom. You can take it or leave it, but here's the deal. Some people will take advantage of your Christianity. People who could help themselves, but they realize these Christians, they're easy hits. Because when I tell them I've got a need, they meet that need because their Bible told them to. So, hey, I'm just going to... We have discovered people just in pastoring here who will come in and ask us for help. And we have a benevolence program. We we help people regularly. Um, All the time, we help people. But... We have found some people who make a circuit with all the churches. They hit all the churches in like a week or two weeks or a month. They go from church to church to church with the same story. 
And they know that Christians, because of what we just read, are going to give them what they need. So I've learned this. When it's a genuine need, you should help people. But if you keep helping them when they could help themselves, you're not helping people. You're teaching them to live a welfare mentality instead of, you know, it's the old thing. Uh, Catch a fish for a guy or teach the guy to fish for himself. Give a guy a fish or teach him to fish. And I believe in helping people. Like I said, we do all the time. But we've had to learn to be discerning because some people take advantage of you. That's free. That's not even in here. That's free. You got that free for just coming to church tonight. Now, um, the Apostle James said the same thing. If you've got a friend who's in need of food and clothing, you say to him, well, goodbye. Well, goodbye. God bless you. Stay warm. Eat hearty. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But you don't give him clothes or food. What good does that do? All right. John says real love will act. He says, my little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, he's next going to use the phrase, by this we know. For the third time in six verses, he's already said twice, we know. We know we've passed from death to life. And by this, we know love. But now verse 19, he's going to show us how we know we're saved by a threefold heart test. So I'm going to give you a a spiritual electrocardiogram right now. All right? Verse 19, here's the first heart test. By this, what does he say? We say it. We know. So we know that we are of the truth, that means saved, and shall assure our hearts before him. So the first test here is a confirming heart. While our salvation is ultimately confirmed by the word of God, our works testify to having genuinely been born again. So he says, by this, by what? By loving the brethren with good works, like he just talked about, that's an indicator we've been born again because we've got a heart for people that longs to help people, that loves people. Good works don't save us, but folks, good works confirm that we have truly been saved. That's why some people come to church, go home. They've never been involved in a a church ministry. They've never been involved in everything. I wonder how. Because, listen, as soon as I was saved and spirit-filled, I was into working for the Lord. And so I don't want you to be God's frozen chosen. Amen? Amen, Pastor Jeff. See, I mean, I've been to churches, you could ice skate down the aisles. It was so cold in there. No life, no love, no nothing. But a real living church, everybody should be involved in good works. Amen. Somebody ought to be getting blessed from your life. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Come on. Now, the second heart test is a condemning heart. Verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart, and he knows all things. See, somebody who is truly born again is sensitive to sin, and they'll feel guilt and conviction when they do wrong. And even though that's an unpleasant thing to feel, thank God we feel it. Next time you feel convicted, you need to thank God you feel convicted because it's evidence that you're saved. I've had people come up to me and say, Pastor, I'm just so afraid I did the unpardonable sin. Well, what'd you do? And they'll tell me whatever they think they went and did and lost their salvation. I said, no, you didn't do the unpardonable sin because if you did, you wouldn't be up here asking me because you wouldn't care. Listen, the lost are not concerned with sin or with offending God. But if you're a child of God, then you're concerned about it and you feel convicted, you get guilty, you need to get it right with God. The Bible tells us that the lost develop a seared conscience. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, but the Holy Spirit explicitly and unmistakably declares that in later times, the latter days, the last days, some will turn away from the faith. Look what happens to them. Paying attention instead to deceitful and seductive spirits and doctrines taught by demons. Look what happens to their conscience. Whose consciences are seared as with a branding iron, leaving them incapable of ethical functioning. 
The conscience is the God-given moral compass within each of us. And if the conscience is seared, literally, it means cauterized. That's the Greek word that it comes from, cauterized, then it has been rendered insensitive. Such a conscience doesn't function properly. It's as if spiritual scar tissue has dulled the sense of right and wrong. Let me point out our culture to you right now. When your conscience is seared, you think north is south and south is north, morally speaking. You think east is west and west is east. You think up is down and down is up. You think light is dark and dark is light. When your conscience has been seared, you can no longer tell right from wrong. So we have people in our culture calling pure wickedness right. How do they do that? Because their consciences are cauterized. They can't tell anymore. Oh, that's so scary to me. Because you're out at sea in a ship with no compass, no anchor. The winds are blowing you wherever they want you to go. And you're going to shipwreck in moral catastrophe when your conscience is dead. That's why I tell you, stay in the word of God. It's like a flint rock on your conscience. It sharpens your conscience. Every time you're in it, you come out sharper than before you went in. That's why people, the longer you're away from the word of God, the longer, the further you get from the God of the word and, and, the, and the duller your spiritual life becomes. So serious. So there's the confirming heart, condemning heart. We're almost done. Everybody say amen. amen. And then the third heart test is the confident heart. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. When our sin is washed away by the shed blood of Jesus at the moment of our salvation, a deep, settled knowing comes upon our heart. The weight of sin is lifted, joy replaces sorrow, and we have confidence to approach God. Amen. Paul said the spirit you receive doesn't make you a slave so that you live in fear like you did before. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, And John says this is going to lead to a fruitful prayer life when you've got a a confident heart. How many of you can say, I'm confident to go into God's presence? Amen? He says in verse 22, whatever we ask, once we have confident hearts, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Notice the connection between answered prayer and living right. The true child of God will endeavor to walk in obedience to the Lord, to his word, living a life that is pleasing to him. We live for an audience of one. I live for an audience of one. I do not live for the opinion of this world. I live for an audience of one. I want an amen from heaven. I want heaven's smile. I want heaven's pleasure. I want heaven's, uh, listen, I want to be right with God. I don't care what the world thinks. As we approach the close of chapter 3, John provides a snapshot of a genuine Christian life. He said, this is his commandment. You want to make it real simple? This is his commandment, that we would believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and just love one another. When you get up tomorrow, what's his commandment over me? Believe on Jesus and love people. That's it. This is his commandment. Believe on him and walk in love. He closes chapter 3 with the last verse, with one more by this we know. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know he abides in us. How, everybody, read it with me. By the Spirit whom he has given us. Now let me close with this very important final truth. This is the irrefutable test as to whether or not you're saved. You want to know you're saved? Here's how you know. His spirit dwells in you. His spirit dwells in you. Paul wrote in Romans emphatically, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He is not a child of God. How do we know we're his? The spirit. How many of you know the spirit of God dwells in you? Amen. How many of you are thankful for the Holy Ghost living inside of you? Amen. Can we stand together tonight? So how do I know I'm a child of God? By his spirit. So guess what, church? Everybody is not a child of God.
I hear these people on TV, oh, everybody's God's child. No, they're not. No, they're not. Everybody is not God's child. Everybody is God's creation. But everybody is not God's child. If you haven't come to Christ, I tell you in love and call on him for forgiveness and had him come into your heart by the Holy Ghost to live inside of you, you're not a child of God. You need to become a child of God. You're not his. He loves you. He died for you. But you're not begotten of God until his spirit dwells in you. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord and thank him? Jesus, we just thank you for giving us the precious Holy Spirit, for sharpening us by your word, sharpening us, Lord, by the scriptures. Thank you, Lord God, that you have changed us, rearranged us, given us brand new natures, a brand new hope. Thank you, Lord, that we're going to have a brand new glorified body. Thank you that soon and very soon we're going to see the King. Thank you, Lord, that our faith is in the living Savior, not a dead religion. Now, Lord, as we've read these verses, we know that all around us right now are people who don't know you. Help Turning Point Church to reach as many as we can in as many ways as we can, as quickly as we can. I pray for every member here tonight, every believer tonight, that you would come upon them with a spirit of evangelism, a spirit of witnessing, a spirit of boldness to share Jesus, to witness Jesus, to reach out to others, to walk in love, and to see somebody come to Christ because we were here on this earth. And Lord, I thank you for it right now. In Jesus' name. Let's sing in one.